The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. King Herod heard of Jesus and his disciples, for Jesus' name had become known. Some were saying, John the baptizer has been raised from the dead, and for this reason these powers are at work in him. But others said, It is Elijah. And others said, It is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For Herod himself had sent men who arrested John, bound him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because Herod had married her. For John had been telling Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to kill him. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he protected him. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his courtiers and officers and for the leaders of Galilee. When his daughter Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it. And he solemnly swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you, even half of my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? She replied, The head of John the baptizer. Immediately she rushed back to the king and requested I want you to give me at once the head of John the baptizer on a platter. The king was deeply grieved, yet out of regard for his oaths and for the guests, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately, the king sent a soldier of the guard with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. In the name of the Holy Trinity, one God, Amen. Amen. I've never particularly cared for this particular gospel lesson. <laughs> I, and I was reading an article uh, last week in preparation for it, and the, the writer of the article said, anyone who preaches on this has guts. <laughs> it really made me want to pursue this. But uh, I think that my feeling about it has uh, become even more distinct, especially with 
all the terrible things that have happened in the Middle East. So I don't really want to hear about another beheading, is what it amounts to. But we yet have this text before us. And perhaps it's especially important for us to consider those texts that we find uncomfortable or unpleasant, or even, as in this case, uh, just ugly. So let us look at this text. I find it interesting that this is the only scene in Mark's gospel uh, where Jesus is not present. And perhaps Mark is saying to us, this is the world without Christ. This is the world that you and I often experience, a world where the weak succumb to the strong, where truth is met with violence, and where the guilty prevail over the innocent. That is the world that Jesus came to redeem. Mark begins by saying that Herod understood who John the Baptist was. And it's a very interesting story when you uh, think about what's going on within Herod's own family. Herod was uh, intrigued by what John was saying. He understood John to be a holy man. And because of that, he wanted to protect him because what was going on in his family was that his wife Herodias wanted John killed. She wanted him killed because she was fed up with him telling Herod and her that what they were doing in their marriage was unlawful. In fact, it was considered to be uh, a, uh, a sin within Judaism. It was an incestuous relationship because Herod had taken his brother's wife, Philip's wife, and had married her. So Herod's solution to this problem in his family was to protect John the Baptist. And the way he did that was by having him arrested and put, it, put into uh, protective custody, essentially. Well, that seemed to work until it came to his birthday, Herod's birthday, the night he had too much to drink and promised too much. <laughs> Herod threw a party for all of the courtiers, for the officers of the court, and for the leaders in Galilee. And at that party, his daughter and Herodias' daughter danced for the, for the company gathered. And they were so impressed with the way she danced that Herod swore an oath to her and said that she could have whatever she requested, even half of his kingdom. Well, the young girl ran to her mother and said, what should I ask of Herod? And her mother said to ask for John the Baptist's head. And so she did. Herod was put on the spot. There he was in front of people who uh, knew him as a powerful leader. He had sworn an oath, and now he had to live up to it. So he commanded that uh, John the Baptist should be executed, and you know the rest of the story. I think as I, I reflect on Herod and upon uh, the power that he had, it's not unlike uh, many people who have a lot of power. They live in fear that that power is going to be taken from them. And I think Herod was afraid that if he didn't follow through with the oath, especially in front of all of those other somewhat powerful people he had gathered for his birthday, that he would be losing some of that power. He would certainly lose face, which is probably as important a thing in the Middle East as anything at all. But he would also have been seen as someone who was weak who could not live up to his oath. 
So Herod did the wrong thing. Rather than doing what he thought was right, he ended up giving in to preserve his power. The story is really uh, an awful one, um, in part because of the imagery that it presents. And we've seen so many depictions of it that are really horrible. But I think we also often put stories like this off as something that's far from us, that's set aside. Uh, almost like I commented before, the stories that I heard in Sunday school were depicted on a flannel board. They sort of stayed on a flannel board. Mm-hmm. And we're more comfortable keeping especially this story of the execution of John the Baptist, sort of over there, out of the way, not part of our lives. But I think we need to make it real to us. I think we need to understand what it meant for Jesus and for the disciples. It's important to note that this account falls between the sending out of the disciples two by two and their return and coming to Jesus and telling, them, uh, telling Jesus all the wonderful things that had happened in the name of God, the people who were healed, that there were demons cast out. So we can imagine the disciples gathered around Jesus and the euphoria of that moment as they talked about their travels and what they had experienced, and Jesus knowing and then telling them of what had happened to John. So here was their ministry. They were so excited about the beginning of that ministry and all that they had seen happen. And then they were struck by the reality of how dangerous it is to proclaim the gospel, to say the truth in the midst of someone who has a lot of power. That was the context of their ministry. And we know from this gospel lesson that Jesus was now being identified with John the Baptist. Herod, you'll recall from the reading, Uh, believes that Jesus is John the Baptist, come back from the dead. So now, uh, the the focus is on Jesus and his ministry and the message that he is proclaiming. And it's a dangerous one. Herod, although he had great admiration, apparently, for John as a holy man, he also feared him and feared what he was doing. And so that fear must have continued on when Jesus and his disciples Uh, continued that same ministry, proclaiming good news to the poor. So this is the context of that ministry of Jesus and the disciples. It's set in the shadow of the execution of John the Baptist. And what would it mean for their lives? Of course, we can see in this also a foreshadowing of what would happen to Jesus as he would stand before another person of power, Pilate, a person who had some admiration for him, a person who could see no wrong in Jesus, saw him as an innocent man, but eventually washed his hands of it and had Jesus executed in an awful way. Well, what do we do with that in terms of our own lives and in terms of our own understanding of the world in which we live? I think that this brings me back, at least, to the suffering that is being caused by ISIS, and especially the suffering that is going on with Christians in that part of the world. Uh, To set it in context how I'm thinking of that, I I want to recall yesterday, uh, I was at David Westner's ordination to the priesthood uh, in uh, Worcester, and it was a wonderful occasion, as you can imagine. 
the, uh, the clergy in Western Massachusetts really turn out for the ordinations. There were, there were so many clergy there celebrating with Dave and his family. The preacher was uh, the Reverend Carrie Maloney. She's the chaplain at Harvard Divinity School. And uh, she had a wonderful sermon, but one sentence in it uh, really grabbed me. And it grabbed me because it's something I've always understood and I proclaimed before, but I don't think that it really became a part of me until she was preaching it yesterday. She said, we are all one because of our baptism. There were people gathered there because many of them from uh, having graduated uh, Harvard Divinity School from different denominations. And she was speaking to all of us who were from that broad spectrum of of, uh, the Christian faith, reminding us that we are all one and we're one because of our baptism. I've had people come to me and say, well, you know, I was baptized a Catholic. Can I be a part of the Episcopal Church? And I remind them. You were not baptized Catholic, you were baptized a Christian. And we recognize every Christian baptism. We're not baptized Episcopalians. We're baptized Christians, which makes us one with every Christian in the world. I think that's an important thing for us to internalize, because it's very easy for me at least, I'm not sure about you, but I can become so focused on this particular expression of the Christian faith can become proud of it, in fact, (laughs) that I tend to separate myself from those of other expressions of that same faith. We must set that aside. We are but one expression among many. We are one with all Christians. Well, I say that because I think we need to remember that we are also one with those Christians who are being persecuted in the Middle East. They probably worship in a very different way from us, certainly in a different language, and certainly with the theology that's probably quite different. But we are one with them. They are our brothers and our sisters, and they are suffering. I I ran across this uh, statistic last week, and it said that there have been as many Christians killed under ISIS as all of the deaths in the Inquisition. Can you imagine that? And we think of the Inquisition as that time of terror. This is a time of terror as well. So what do we do? What do we do about living in a world that is so dangerous, where proclamation of the gospel or even proclamation of one's faith as a Christian can draw danger to us? The first thing we can do is to pray. I believe we need to pray for those who suffer, and not just for the Christians, but for all of those who are of minority faiths, for those Muslims who are Sufi and are not Sunni. And because they're Sufi, they're being being terrorized as well. We need to pray and believe that it's possible that change can happen in that part of the world. The second thing that we can do is to support those people in some way. There is a refugee crisis that's almost unimaginable that's going on right now in the Middle East and in Europe, especially those uh, southern European countries are struggling so much with refugees, refugees from from war, uh, many of them coming from Syria, but also many coming from Africa. 
there is one organization I know about, and there are many others. I would, I would urge you to uh, get on your computer and Google and find out, uh, find an organization that you think might make a difference and support it. The one I know about is uh, the one that Canon White in Baghdad uh, has founded. I've preached about Canon White before. He's sometimes called the vicar of Baghdad. He's actually the vicar of St. George's in Baghdad, an Anglican church. And the organization he founded is the Foundation for Relief and Reconciliation in the Middle East. Is all you need to do is Google Canon White and you'll find it. His organization, small as it is, has done an enormous amount of work, especially among the refugees in Iraq. Not just Christians, but also Muslims and, and others of minority faiths. Uh, the woman who works with him is a dentist, and, but she's become more of an administrator now. And she's a Muslim, but she goes out and has done so much, put her life at risk in order to help Christians who are suffering in the northern part of Iraq. So I hope you'll consider that as something that can be done to make a difference in a world that is so difficult for some people to live in. But finally, I believe that what is needed is for us to be transformed. We're going to always be living in a world that's thorny, that is unpleasant in some respects, and in some places very dangerous, and especially dangerous to people who might proclaim their faith. But let us be transformed. Let us become instruments of God's grace. The world that we live in right now is this world. We don't live over there. We can be connected to them. We can pray for them. We can support organizations that make a difference for them. But the world that we live in is here and now. And this world can be pretty thorny as well. So let us be transformed as people of grace, people who bring the love of God into the world that we occupy. And I pray for both you and for me that we can have the grace of God to do that. Pray for those who suffer. Offer help as you can. And be an instrument of God's grace every day of your life. Amen. Amen.